if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, united to him by faith, trusting in him alone, then God is texting you this emoji right now. That's the clapping hands emoji, if you don't know. It's used in text messages and comment sections on social media to signify, to signify applause. And the good news is that God uses the clapping hands emoji for his children. Not because we're good, but because he is good. Because we are covered in his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees us in Jesus. He sees his own son. Therefore, God uses the clapping hands emoji. He's clapping and saying to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's all because of Jesus and not anything that we do. Listen, you don't have to wait to someday far off in the future to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's singing it over you and clapping right now, Christian. I don't care what kind of week you had. God is saying, well done, good and faithful servant because of his son. And that's the greatest thing in the world, right? To be loved and accepted and pleasing to God Almighty? Wow. Maybe you need to be flabbergasted anew by that today. I mean, if you are not flabbergasted by the fact that God loves you just like he loves his own son, Jesus, then you need to get your flabbergasty thingy fixed. Because it's true. Now, believe it or not, there are people who stare in the mirror and use the clapping hand emoji at the reflection that they see. They toot their own horn. They marvel at how smart they are, how many degrees they have, how many visions they've seen, how spiritual they are, how close to Jesus they are. And that's who the Apostle Paul was dealing with at Corinth. The false teachers, he calls them super apostles, who had invaded the church in Corinth were full of themselves. They valued self-promotion. And they loved to talk about themselves and how smart they were and how they saw visions and how they were super spiritual. And they loved to brag and to boast. And they had to be the center of attention. And they would have loved social media, okay? Man, the super apostles would have had a field day with Facebook. Always talking about themselves. And so this is who Paul is dealing with in 2 Corinthians, narcissist. And so now Paul is in this awkward position because he has to deal with the accusations and criticisms that have been leveled against him by the super apostles. But to do that, Paul has to talk about himself and his credentials and his apostolic authority. And Paul really doesn't want to do that. 
He has to respond and defend himself, but to do so will make him seem like he is talking about himself and promoting himself. So Paul is in this very awkward position. If he asserts his apostolic qualifications, which were given to him by God, then the super apostles are going to say, see, we told you so. Paul is just so full of himself, always talking about himself. But if he downplays his apostolic credentials and he says nothing and doesn't address the situation, then the super apostles are going to tell the Corinthians, see, we told you that Paul was a lightweight and nothing spectacular. He's weak sauce. He's a doormat. So Paul has no choice. He will have to boast about his apostolic credentials and authority for the sake of the Corinthian church. But what Paul will end up boasting about are not the things that the super apostles boasted about. Paul will boast about his weaknesses. Paul will stoop to their level and boast, but he will not play by their rules. If he is going to boast, it will be about how weak he is. And so in the next two chapters and on, boasting will become the dominant theme. And Paul will have to boast about his credentials, but his boasting is not like the super apostles. So more on that as we go along. Here's our big idea today. You will boast in the Lord to the degree that you are resting in him. You will boast in the Lord. You will boast in the cross. You will boast in the finished work of Jesus to the degree that you are resting in him. When you are resting in Christ, you won't go around trying to prove yourself. Instead, you will boast in, you will rejoice in, you will exult in Jesus and what he has done for you. And you will really start to rest. As Rankin Wilborn said, to be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempt to find or craft an acceptable identity or your tireless work to manage your own reputation, these are over and done. You can rest in Christ. You don't have to be intimidated by anyone Ever. Who are you? You are in Christ. And you no longer need to fear the judgment of God. When God looks at you, he sees you hidden in Christ. This is freedom. This is confidence. This is good, good news. So when you come to grips with what it means that you are in Christ, united to him by faith, you don't have to prove yourself anymore to anybody. And you won't spend all your time trying to craft an image or be somebody you're not, which is what happens on social media a lot, right? And you won't spend all of your time crafting this image, being somebody you're not, or working tirelessly to get people to like you. You won't wear yourself out trying to manage your own reputation. You'll stop caring about what people think about you and you'll stop being a slave to what other people think about you? I mean, how great would that be? 
Well, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is resting in Christ, therefore he isn't paralyzed by all of the stinging criticisms and accusations that are being leveled against him. He's actually free. So let's dive in and find out how we can become free too. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, and hear the word of the Lord. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. You have to read, read that quote that way. Like, you know, nah, nah, nah. So Paul is asking the Corinthians to open their eyes. He says, look at, at what is before you, what is before your eyes. He wants him to see the evidence of God's grace. He wants him to be able to say what we were just singing. I see the evidence of God's grace all over my life. And the reason he says this it's because the super apostles were accusing Paul of three things that he addresses in our passage today. Number one, they said, Paul wasn't that special. Number two, Paul's wishy-washy. And number three, Paul's a third-rate preacher. So let's discuss each of those. First, they said that Paul wasn't that special. The super apostles were implying that they had some sort of special relationship with God that Paul didn't have. He's just an ordinary Christian, nothing special. But the super apostles claim to know Jesus on an even deeper level. They fail to see that God doesn't have any favorite children. Listen, there are no super Christians in the body of Christ. And there are no second class Christians. All that any of us have to boast in is the cross. That's it. So that means that famous pastors are not loved more by God than you. Famous pastors aren't any more special than you are. But the super apostles thought they were special. They were claiming a superior spiritual life. They claimed to experience the higher life. They claimed to experience the Holy Spirit in ways that Paul didn't. They were anointed. They had an in with God. The second accusation was that Paul was inconsistent. He's wishy-washy. They said things like, he writes these big, strong, weighty letters that pack a punch, but when he shows up, Paul doesn't back up his words. There's no charisma. He's unimpressive. He's wishy-washy, weak sauce. And then, lastly, they said that Paul was a third-rate preacher. They valued eloquent preaching. So it wasn't what you said that made for great preaching, but how you said it. And so they said something like, and as for Paul's preaching, two thumbs down. This guy is no Alistair Begg. Even a Scottish accent wouldn't help Paul's preaching. You know, a Scottish accent does help your preaching. You know that? It's an unfair advantage. 
to be able to say like Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson, to be able to tell your congregation things like, turn to your Bibles and Romans chapter eight. We'll look at the righteousness of God. It's unfair to people like me from Oklahoma. Because I'm like, turn in your Bibles, y'all. So Paul is dealing with these accusations and these criticisms and lots of it. And to that, Paul would say, welcome to ministry. Welcome to leadership. Listen, criticism is a no-brainer for leadership, whether it's ministry or not. If you're a leader in any capacity, you will be criticized. And if you didn't believe that prior to 2020, you believe it now. No leader could win in 2020, or even now, 2021. Doesn't matter what decision you make, instantly, there's a section that hate your decision. Leaders swim in the ocean of criticism, and there are a lot of sharks, a lot of critics, ready to attack and bite you. The question for the disciple of Jesus, though, is how do I respond to criticism? How do I keep criticism from killing me? Tim Keller is very helpful here. He says, when your boast is in the cross, criticism doesn't kill you. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. I can take criticism. Now, we've all been criticized before, haven't we? It doesn't feel good, does it? It kills us. It feels like a death, especially if the criticisms are unfounded, and untrue, and especially if the criticisms come from our enemies. But the hard truth is that until we die, we will keep experiencing criticism. And so how do we, as disciples of Jesus, deal with criticism in a gospel-centered way? How do we keep it from killing us? We have to learn the secret of finding our identity in Jesus. We have to learn how to boast in the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul did. The criticisms that Paul received about not being anything special, being wishy-washy, and being a subpar preacher didn't kill him. Now, this, this does not deny our feelings and how these things can really hurt. They can. I'm sure Paul was hurt. The criticisms that he was receiving from some Corinthians really stung and pierced his heart because some of these people were his friends. He planted this church. He knew these people. So of course, those criticisms and accusations leveled against him by his friends, sure, it hurt. Paul was a human being just like you and me, but he didn't stay in that place of hurt. He could handle their criticisms because his identity was wrapped up in Christ and not in ministry. And that, my friends, is the key to ministry. You have to find your identity in Christ, not in ministry. If your identity is in ministry and not in Jesus, then criticism will kill you. And who wants that on their tombstone? Here lies John Doe, loving pastor and friend. He died of ministry-related causes. In the end, criticisms did him in. When your boast is in the cross, 
criticism doesn't kill you. You can handle criticism when your identity is in Christ. What did Paul tell the Corinthians in his first letter? 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul was so secure in Christ that he didn't get worked up when someone disliked him or spoke behind his back. It was just a small thing, Paul says to him. Wouldn't that be a great quality to have? To not get worked up over criticism? To have it be just a small thing? How do we get there to that place like Paul? How do we get to the place where we're not slaves to what people think of us? Where we actually believe and feel that it is a small thing to be judged by someone because we are in Christ? How do we get to the place where we're no longer people pleasers? Let me ask you, are you a people pleaser? I think most of us are to some extent. Do you want to be free from the fear of man today? Are you crushed when you are criticized or when you receive negative feedback? Are you tired and exhausted from constantly trying to prove yourself? If so, how can you be set free from that bondage? Because that's not what Jesus meant when he said that he would give you rest Jesus does not want you living a life where you are controlled by what you fear people will think about you. In order to be free, we have to look at Jesus. Just take some time and stare at him. And when we look to Jesus in the scriptures, we find someone who was so secure in his father's love that he truly did not need man's approval. Jesus did not care about anyone's opinion. He was not a slave to what others thought of him. He wasn't swayed by appearances, and neither was Paul. So Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 11 that what he and his friends are in their letters, they will be when they show up. He doesn't write these strong letters just to scare them. Paul says he will use his apostolic authority that has been given to him by God to do church discipline if they don't repent and change. Paul will not be the weak, wimpy doormat that they think he is when he shows up. He will use his God-given authority to build up the Corinthians and not tear them down. And so Paul is functioning just like Jesus, the great shepherd, as he deals with the Corinthians. Don't miss how pastoral Paul is here. He wants to build people up. He wants to encourage them, not put them down, not correct them, not put them in their place. Paul's actually calling the Corinthians back to the gospel. He's calling them back to Jesus. And you can't get more pastoral than that, can you? You can't get more pastoral than return to your first love. Maybe there's somebody here today that needs to hear that. Return to Jesus, your first love. Today, you can come home. Well, let's continue. Look at verse 12. 
Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. So Paul says he's not going to engage in a comparison match with the super apostles. And here's why. Because they measure themselves by themselves. I mean, it's wrong, but it's genius, isn't it? You set the standard for yourself, and guess what? You always meet it. How convenient. You're never wrong. You're perfect. That was the super apostles. They commended themselves to each other, and they measured themselves by themselves, and so guess what? They always came out on top. And you see it in verse 12, because in the Greek, the word themselves is used six times by Paul here to kind of reinforce the idea that the super apostles were their own standard. They always met the criteria. But Paul says in verse 12, when they do this, they are without understanding. They don't understand the gospel. See, we are not the standard, and we don't set the standard for other people. The word of God is the standard. The law of God is the standard. Christ is our standard, not some man-made rules and regulations. Things like don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, and don't date girls who do. The false teachers set up these worldly standards that only they met, and then they boasted about it. But if Paul is going to boast, he says, I will boast in the area where God planted me. Paul knows that God is the one who assigned the church in Corinth to him. So if, they, if the Corinthians want to doubt Paul's apostolic credentials, his apostolic authority, by doubting Paul, then aren't they doubting their own salvation? If they're doubting the guy who brought the gospel to them, are they not then doubting their own salvation? So Paul is not out of place when he boasts of the gospel and its triumphs in Corinth because God is the one who assigned Corinth to Paul. And then he uses this phrase in verse 13, area of influence. It was a track and field term. It was used to describe the lanes on a track. Literally, it's the word Canon, from which we get the term canon. Not the canon that shoots something out, but canon. Uh, it means rule or standard, like a, a yardstick or a rule. It's where we get the expression, the canon of Scripture. Have you heard that before? What is the canon of Scripture? It's the books of the Bible that make up God's Word, the standard or the canon of Scripture. And so this word canon was used in Paul's day of lanes on a track, like track and field. So what Paul is saying then is that the Corinthians are in Paul's lane. God brought them into his lane, into his life. Therefore, the super apostles have invaded Paul's lane. They've crossed the line over into Paul's lane. They don't belong there. And so understand this, Grace. God is the one who designs and assigns our boundaries of ministry. God determines the lanes in our lives. He determines who comes into our lanes, into our lives. In other words, 
Every person in your life right now has been put there by a sovereign God. The question then becomes, do you believe it? Even the people in your life who get under your skin and drive you crazy have been brought into the lane of your life by a sovereign God. So who's in your lane? Is it a cumbersome coworker? A nagging mother-in-law? An overbearing boss? Noisy neighbors? Your parents? Your spouse? All have been brought into the lane of your life by a good, sovereign God. And that's tough to hear because if you're like me, I just want easy, enjoyable people in my life. Can I just get that? I just want easy, enjoyable people in my life. All my friends, all the people that I get along with. I don't want anybody who gets under my skin in my life. But that's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Jesus, isn't it? See, that's not how God thinks. God doesn't think, I'll just give you easy, enjoyable people in your life. He determines who comes into our lane, and he has a purpose for each one. Our job is to love those people. All the people that come into our lane, our job is to love them, even the people that get under our skin. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us do that. And he is more than willing But notice next how Paul isn't merely content with the Corinthians being in his lane. He also wants to see the gospel spread to other lanes too. Look at verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Paul is saying that he did not overextend himself and invade someone else's lane of ministry when he brought the gospel to Corinth. He brought the gospel to Corinth. But it's the super apostles who are trying to get all the credit So Paul is not boasting about anything that's happening in somebody else's lane of ministry because God brought him there. What Paul wants for the Corinthians is for them to get stabilized by the gospel. He wants, he says, your faith to increase. That means he wants them, their trust in the finished work of Christ to deepen. He wants them, their faith in the imputed righteousness of Christ, which has already been given to them in the gospel, not that they earn through their works. He wants their faith and trust in that to enlarge, to deepen. He wants them to mature spiritually so that he can move on to other places, other lanes with the gospel. And if they don't mature, then he'll never be able to focus on the nations that have not heard the gospel. And the word that Paul uses here for increases, when he says, I want your faith to increase, is the word that we've seen a lot lately in 2 Corinthians. It means overflowing. He wants their faith to overflow the set boundaries. He wants their trust in the finished work of Christ to flood their hearts. He wants them to rest in who they are in Christ Because Paul knows that you will boast in the Lord 
to the degree that you are resting in him, to the degree that your trust in Christ is overflowing. And so here's what Paul is saying in this whole section. My boast is in Jesus, not in anything in me, not my gifts, not my talents, nothing. Paul doesn't have an internal validation meter. Some of us have that, this internal validation meter where we just need to be validated by people so that we feel like we have a sense of worth. If they will just approve of me, if they will just applaud me, if they will just praise me, then I can finally live. Paul doesn't have that internal validation meter. He doesn't need the validation of other people. Paul is content to hear the applause of God because of Jesus. Paul is content with the fact that God the Father is saying to him, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't need people to like his posts on social media. Might be nice, but it's not what he lives for. So what a glorious Sunday for us to care less of what people think about us and to care more about what our Heavenly Father declares to be true of us. What a glorious Sunday to boast only in Jesus. That's our calling. That's our job. Our job isn't to get God and people to like us and validate us. We are in Christ. We are already fully accepted by God. By God, we are already fully accepted by Almighty God. Think about that. Therefore, we don't need other people's approval. Our job is to love our neighbor, to love them and not use them to get affirmation and validation. That's backwards. Some people use people to get validation and affirmation. That's backwards. Our job is to love our neighbors and give to them instead of trying to get them to like us. And our calling today isn't to try to make God happy with us because that's a silly and self-serving notion. God already rejoices in us as much as he rejoices in Jesus. Now, that does not mean that we can't please God because several times Paul talks about walking in a manner that pleases the Lord. And that also doesn't mean that just because we are already accepted in God that we can live any way that we want to because that's wrong too. But it is true, God already rejoices in us as much as he rejoices in his own son, Jesus. That's the glory of the gospel. And so our calling today is to boast in Jesus what he has done for us and then to seek and to honor him in all that we do. Our job and our calling is to boast. In fact, we're commanded to boast. Look at verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Notice how Paul points them back to scripture. He quotes from the prophet Jeremiah about boasting, a passage I'm sure the super apostles knew. Paul already quoted this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so the Corinthians knew this verse. And this idea of boasting has the idea, as I mentioned earlier, of, of exaltation of rejoicing in 
And it's actually an imperative in the Greek. It's a command. And so we could translate it as, but the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. All that we can boast in is Jesus. And so who does God commend? Paul tells us the Lord commends those who are resting in the finished work of his son. Not those who toot their own spiritual horn. Not those who take pride in their performance. The Lord commends. The Lord texts the clapping hands emoji to those who boast in the cross of his son. To those who are trusting and resting and boasting in Jesus. To those people, God does this. And here's how practical this is. When we boast in the Lord... It keeps us from falling prey to the devastating sting of criticism. Now, the alternative is what? To boast in ourselves. Our gifts, our opinions, our theological degrees, our spiritual experiences. And when we do that, what we are doing is desperately trying to build this self-esteem resume to fill the emptiness in our hearts. We do this to make us feel special. Paul is being criticized, Paul is being accused, and where does he turn? To the Lord. His boast is in the Lord. He doesn't commend himself like the super apostles. He doesn't toot his own horn. Paul knew that the secret to handling accusations and criticisms, whether from the super apostles or the devil himself, Paul knew that the secret was to boast in the cross. I mean, what do we typically do when we are accused by Satan? or accused by others of something, we get defensive, don't we? We start thinking things like, but I'm a good mother. I'm a great employee. I serve here and here and here, and I'm not like that person, right? The only way to deal with accusations and criticisms that won't cause you to turn to defensive pride or debilitating despair is to boast in the Lord. Because if you go down the comparison road or you start commending yourself like the super apostles, then you've already lost the battle. Let me ask you today, what are you boasting in? What justifies your existence? If the answer is not the cross of Jesus, then you will live a miserable life. We were redeemed by Jesus so that we would boast in him and what he has done for us and not what we do for him. And so discipleship is this, it really is this lifelong process where we learn to resist the temptation to build our identities from and to get our significance from our accomplishments and our moral progress and instead to find it all in Jesus. Because all of us will and all of us are boasting in something. And what we boast in will ultimately define who we are. We draw our sense of identity and self-worth from the things we boast in. And that's dangerous. And here's why. Because what happens if you lose it? What happens if you lose those things that you are boasting in? You'll be devastated. You'll crumble. But if you boast in the cross, if you boast in the Lord, you can handle any criticism that comes your way and you'll never lose it. 
and it actually keeps you from obsessing inwardly. And instead, you become a person who isn't fixated on self, but instead are fixated on loving and serving your neighbors. That's our calling, to love and serve our neighbors. Like Paul here, I want to take the gospel to other places. He's not sitting around being like, woe is me, people don't like me, they're saying I'm a terrible preacher and I don't preach like Alistair Begg. He's not doing that. He's not turning inward. He's boasting in the cross and saying, I've got to take this message of the cross to other lands. And when you begin to be drawn into this life of boasting in Jesus, then you will find that the stress and the pressure of trying to please people will begin to diminish. You actually won't care so much what people think of you when you are focused on God's glory and not your own. You'll actually truly begin to live and you'll be free. I mean, doesn't that sound good? To be free? And when you're drawn into this life of boasting in Jesus, guess what? Your ego will begin to die a slow death and your ego needs to die a slow death and so does mine. Here, to quote Tim Keller again, he says, the ego is incredibly busy. It is always drawing attention to itself, busy trying to fill the emptiness and it's incredibly busy doing two things in particular, comparing and boasting. When we boast, we do so to create a self-esteem resume to desperately fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. When we boast, we're just trying to fill an emptiness that only the gospel can fill. This is why we compare ourselves to others. We want to feel better than other people. We need somebody to look down on, don't we? We all just, I just need one person I can look down on and say, at least I'm not like them, right? And that makes us boast in our own self-righteousness. But when we do that, we're just desperately trying to create this self-esteem resume that we can read over and be like, oh yeah, I'd hire me in a heartbeat. To create this self-esteem resume that will somehow fill our sense of inadequacy and the emptiness that we feel in our heart. But when you're boasting in the cross, you can handle criticism, even fair criticism. You can listen to criticism and you can learn from any mistakes that you make because your identity is in Christ and not in you. It's objective and not subjective. So as we close, let me remind you, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. And you are righteous in God's eyes and you are accepted and you are free from the exhaustion of always having to prove yourself. The gospel frees you from having to impress people. It frees you from having to prove yourself and measure up and make people think you're something that you're not. In other words, you're free and now You can stop pretending. You can just be real. Remember, you will boast in the Lord to the degree that you are resting in him. And so rest, my friends, and then get to boasting. And rest because God is doing this over your life right now because of Jesus. He's saying, well done, good 
and faithful servant. Well done. And that's happening all because Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for anticipating our weaknesses and struggles. And thank you for constantly wooing our hearts back to gospel sanity. For wooing our hearts back to Jesus. This is so incredible. You are more prone to pursue us than we are prone to wander away from you. And you're better at forgiving us than we are at sinning against you. And you're far more generous than we are foolish. And to that we say hallelujah. What do we want to boast in more robustly today? That you know love and delight in us. And we want to know you more intimately and consistently and joyfully, Father. Your steadfast love and your justice and your righteousness have been clearly revealed to us in Jesus. Through him, you have lavished immeasurable kindness on us. And you satisfied every demand of justice. And you've given us the gift of his perfect righteousness. We are immeasurably rich And so we ask you to make this undeniably real to us today. Free us this August Sunday to walk with you in joyful, peaceful humility. Help us to show mercy and live justly and to love boldly. For so great a salvation and for so great a Savior, we praise, bless, and adore you, Father. So very amen, we pray in Jesus' strong and loving name.